0: So we have a really interesting show this week, and we didn't make it. Uh, Jim and I are taking off most of July and August, and instead we're sharing this episode from the Village Squarecast. Like us at How Do We Fix It? They're members of the Democracy Group podcast network. And the show we're sharing is about cities, cities. Why do we connect with some places and not others? Why does this matter in a time of rigid partisan divide? We explore with the help of Village Squarecast and Peter
1: Kageyama. Right now, there's a pretty big gap between the city that we desire and the city we know we can afford. But the solution is for more of us to get in the game. To be the people who fill that gap and step in and do something above and beyond ordinary citizenship. And really put our money where our mouth is. When we say we love a place, well, what are you willing to do for it? Because when you love something, you go above and beyond. You forgive its shortcomings, and you fight for it.
0: Our show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix
0: it? Welcome to episode 390, and this is the first one we've ever published that doesn't include either an interview or a conversation. Instead, it's edited extracts of a speech. By Peter Kagayama. His books include For the Love of Cities, Love Where You Live, and The Emotional Infrastructure of Cities. So you kind of get the picture. Peter thinks about infrastructure in a different way than most urban planners. He's a senior fellow at the Alliance for Innovation, which is a national network of city leaders dedicated to improving the practice of local government. Peter spoke in Tallahassee, Florida, to an event organized by the Village Square. Village Squarecast released this episode earlier this year, and Peter's speech picks up with a reference to a Gallup poll conducted for the Knight Foundation called The Soul of the Community.
1: They ask 40,000 people, 26 cities over a three-year period. And they're basically taking the temperature of our relationship with our place. And what they found was actually kind of sad. Uh, found that 40% of people would identify as unattached to their place. 36% are neutral and just 24%, less than one in four of us, one in four, would define themselves as attached to their place. Attachment is not love. Attachment is sort of the bare beginnings of what we would probably all consider good citizenship. Attachment means you voted, uh, you volunteer once a year at the homeless shelter, and you're part of the community watch. Congratulations, you're attached. How warm and fuzzy does that feel? And as Vince also noted, Gallup also was correlating this to economic data, and what they found was very, very striking. That the places that had the highest levels of passion and loyalty also had the correspondingly highest levels of local GDP and economic vitality. Interesting. Now, the fact that love matters matters, I don't think I have to make that case too hard to any of you. I mean, we all feel this. We all know this. When children are loved, they thrive. The same with pets, plants, and objects. And I do mean objects. Um, Most of us have a relationship with an automobile, right? It's an object. That car gets you from point A to point B, and we treat it like a tool. And that's perfectly fine. But we all know people who love cars, right? Somebody who maybe is out there on the weekends with a baby diaper waxing that car like a chamois and they change the oil in the car, even if the car hasn't been driven because it's time to change the oil, right? Um, maybe some of you are those people, you know, the ones who really love cars. Now, this car looks and feels very different than the car probably most of us drive. Why? Well, it's because the person who owns this car has invested some of their time, some of their emotional content, some of their love into that object, and it clearly shows. Now, don't you think if more of us invested Our time, our emotional content, and our love into our neighborhoods, into our cities, into our communities, that they would shine a bit more like this car? I do believe they would. Now, this question, what do you love and what do you hate about your communities, is one I've been asking all over the world for several years now. And of course, I've got this wild diversity of answers, as one would expect, but I've also got an almost comic uniformity of some answers. And these are cutting across borders, national borders, state borders, and things like that. And people are remarkably consistent about what they say they dislike, what they say they hate about their cities. And it's become almost comic. And you can probably relate to this. What do people hate? Well, they hate big things. Big things like traffic, parking, uh, a bad education system, bad planning, ugly, ugly design. Big intractable problems that I'm not sure we ever truly fix. At best, we maybe address them as symptoms, right? And there's nothing that symbolizes this more than the pothole. But here's the thing about potholes is, you know, citizens, they'll complain. It's like, hey, there's a pothole. Somebody fix that. So, you know, they complain to local government. Local government eventually fixes the pothole. It becomes a sort of ongoing song and dance, right? And we sort of reduce our relationship and our points of contact with, uh, with local government to fixing potholes. Well, I can tell you this. You can fix every pothole here in Leon County, and the collective citizenry, you guys, would all stand up and say, eh, thanks, streets don't suck quite so bad. (laughs) There is no love for fixing potholes. There's very little emotional return on investment for fixing those potholes, which is not to say we stop fixing the potholes. But I think we can agree that it has to be something more than just that that makes us, you know, connected to our cities. Because let's face it, if it was just about police and fire service and paved roads... Why would you stay in one place versus another? There's no difference then. In order to be a functioning city, you have to meet certain minimum threshold requirements. You have to be both functional and safe, okay? That's the minimum threshold for a working city, for a working community, working neighborhood. Okay, I get that. But what do we actually want? Well, it turns out the other things that we'd like in our city and our community, comfort. Why can't our city be comfortable, Why can't it be convivial in the sense that it actually helps facilitate us coming together and interacting with each other? Why can't it be interesting and maybe more appropriately, why can't it be fun? The things that we love about our cities actually tend to be small things. They tend to be intimate things. And in my book, I liken them to the idea of a handwritten note that goes with the gift. And guys... We all did this. At some point in our lives, we made the mistake of giving a gift to our significant other, our our wife, our our girlfriend, and we forgot to put the note in with the gift, right? You know, when when they get the gift, they look at you and like, oh, honey. And you know you've missed something. It doesn't quite register at first. Oh, darn, the card. Why the card? Well, because the card says we've taken a moment. We've personalized it. We've made this intimate connection uh, beyond the mere gift. That small thing has an outsized impact on the way people feel about the gift uh, and, and, and the giver, The same thing, I think, applies to cities. Small things, these love notes. Small things, outsized impact. And um, the nice thing is, is these are things that cities can give to citizens. And sometimes, sometimes, citizens will give back to their cities. And I've got a few examples of these love notes, if you will. Any of you guys been back to New York City in the last two years or so? A few hands going up. Okay. Um, if you went to Times Square in New York City in the last couple of years, you've seen a radically different Times Square since they've made it a pedestrian-only zone. Because in the past when you went to Times Square, the one thing you really wanted to do was look around because it's sensory overload, right? Signs and people and just this, all this stuff going on there. And in the past, if you, if you, had the, you, know, if you were there and you stopped on the sidewalk, you're going to get run over by a New Yorker. Take one step off the curb, run over by a cab. Take your pick. Now, because they, you know, they've pushed the cars to the periphery, uh, they made it a pedestrian-only zone, they brought in seating, they brought in Wi-Fi. It's a fantastic place to do the one thing you wanted to do, which was just look around. Mm-hmm. Amazing difference. Um, and you can see how it's become an, a performance venue, a place to, to sit and people watch. It's fantastic. And the guy who runs the, the Times Square Business Alliance uh, told me an interesting thing. He said, in the past two years, locals have started to come back to Times Square. Now, in the past, a local New Yorker would not have been caught dead in Times Square because that's where all you tourists were, looking around, taking pictures, things like that. Um, Now, because it's interesting and, you know, um, there's places to sit and it's comfortable. It's like a third space. Locals have started to come back to New York. Amazing. By the way, when they proposed this, there was a lot of people who, you know, were hue and cry about this. They said, you're going to bring traffic in Manhattan to a standstill. Are you crazy? Well, it turns out they weren't. That It's actually traffic moves around. It facilitates it just fine. And now New York City has this fantastic giant living room, if you will, where people can go and experience the city. Go there. You will totally, it will definitely change the way you feel about New York City. Any of you folks here have been to Millennium Park in Chicago? A few. Okay. Um, I bet you had this experience. This is called Cloud Gate, by the way. Um, But it's known locally as The Bean. All good public art needs a nickname. When you approach the bean, I bet you did this. You found your reflection in the bean, right? You took your picture. You took your friend's picture. You took this sort of skyline picture, right? And while you're doing that, kids underneath of it, rolling around on the ground, playing with it, touching it. And then right next to it, you have these towers, uh, two towers. And these are actually video screens, okay? The eyes open. It smiles at you, right? Um, and then during the summer months, they have these water cannons that shoot water out onto the deck. And it's like this giant above-ground pool. And you will see hundreds of kids out there on a typical hot summer day um, having fun, laughing. Once you see this, you never forget it. Once you've experienced Millennium Park, you will never forget it. So there is a valuation that we have to attribute to these things beyond the purely financial. And that has to do with the emotional side and the emotional engagement that these things create in us. Think about play. Play is incredibly important in our interpersonal relationships. Those those unstructured, unplanned moments when we're just at ease with our friends, our family, play. They are at the heart of our relationships, right? We need more opportunities to play with our cities. And certainly public art is a great example of how you could do that. But sometimes it can be really, really simple. And surprise and delight doesn't have to cost a whole lot of money. But surprise and delight requires us to think about the problem and think about the experience in a different way. What could we do if we looked at the problem a little bit differently Uh, and tried to think about surprise and delight in in conjunction with our technical solution. Good stuff. Now, I love museums. We all, well, of course we love museums. This is the Tampa Museum of Art near where uh, I live. So the Tampa Museum opened up a couple of years ago. Great design, cool collection, and a couple of small but significant things that they did there. One is the dog park that's out in back of it right there on the Hillsborough River, and the other is the playground that's out in front of it. As high-minded as we would all like to think of ourselves, like, oh, of course, I always go to the art museum, right? How often do we actually go and have the traditional museum experience where we pay our money, we go through the galleries and, you know, see everything, that traditional museum experience, right? Once, twice a year, maybe when, you know, a really new, a great new exhibit comes into town, or more likely when some of our friends from out of town come in, you know, it's like if we want to impress them, it's like, oh, let's go to the art museum, you know. Heck with a sports bar, let's go to the art museum. Uh, But think about this. On a daily basis, hundreds, if not thousands of people are interacting with this museum without ever actually going into the museum because of the dog park and because of the playground. These two small elements anchored by that museum, but these two small elements exponentially increase the value of that museum. And every city in North America has a farmer's market, right? You probably have several uh, here uh, in Tallahassee. People tend to think of these farmer's markets, oh, they're, they're nice to have they're actually far more important than that. If you actually dig into what people really connect with and what they really love about their their local community, these farmer's markets really do matter. Uh, This is the downtown uh, Saturday morning market uh, in St. Petersburg. And I like to say it's where St. Petersburg goes to meet itself. Because I will go there and I'm guaranteed I'm going to see people I know. I'm going to see people with their dogs and their kids. I'm going to taste new things. I'm going to buy new stuff. The former mayor, Rick Baker, used to go down there and play his guitar on a pretty regular basis, which I always thought was an incredibly astute political move, because you get to see the mayor out of the suit and tie doing something kind of cool, right? The place where your city goes to meet itself. We tend to think of these things as nice and sweet, and they are, but you dig into it, they are actually far more important than we probably give them credit for. So we need to value these things, I think, a little bit more.
0: That's Peter Kageyama, and you're listening to a speech recorded by Village Squarecast, a podcast produced by the wonderful group in Florida called The Village Square. I'm Richard Davies. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now more from Peter and his speech, and he includes some slides that he showed to the audience. Fortunately, he also has some pretty clear descriptions of what's on those slides. Uh, This part of his speech includes examples of cities and towns where rituals and traditions contribute to the soul of a place. And he explains why this matters.
1: This is the, uh, a, a little town in western Massachusetts called Shelburne Falls. And this is called the Iron Bridge. And for 364 days out of the year, um, the Iron Bridge has cars and trucks that go back and forth on it. But for one night out of the year in August, for the last dozen years or so, they close down the bridge and they have dinner on it. <laughs> Uh, They bring out the linen tablecloths, the linen napkins. They have um, the local students are uh, the waiters and waitresses. And they get the local restaurants to cater the event. And it's this giant fundraiser for the Chamber of Commerce. And it's a fantastic night out. Now, you may travel across this bridge every day going to and from work, to and from school. But I guarantee you that having dinner on that bridge will not only make you change the way you think about the bridge and the way you experience it, but the way you think and experience your city. You feel it in a different way. This is Brattleboro, Vermont. Small rural community in Vermont. And, um, they're looking around like a lot of, you know, small communities. They think, well, what the heck can we do? How could, how do we compete with Chicago or, you know, Boston and stuff like that? They looked around and said, what do we got? Somebody said, well, we got a lot of cows. Okay. So they took the idea, you know, of the, the running of the bulls in Pamplona. Well, this is the strolling of the heifers (laughs) in Brattleboro. So like these slow moving, you know, parade floats on hooves. They bring the cows in. And they they parade them through downtown. And it's this wonderful sort of community engagement kind of thing. Now, of course, people are having a great time with this. But at the same time, they're actually also underscoring the importance of their agricultural economy, their rural roots, sustainable farming, all that really good stuff is sort of wrapped up in this really fun kind of sweet moment. How about the idea of a bike-friendly city as a lovable city? Think about how much of our city-making seems to be in service to the car lots of it. Um, In fact, it almost seems to be all about the car, you know, all these things about parking and traffic and stuff like that. It seems like you can't do anything because of the car. Well, citizens pick up on that, and they ask themselves, where are we in this conversation, all right? So if you can become a little bit more of a bike-friendly city, you're essentially sending the message out to the citizens, hey, we're at least thinking about you. It's not just about the car, A dog-friendly city is a lovable city. We walk our dogs. And when we walk our dogs, interesting things happen. We're actually out there using space. We're using the environment. uh, We're using the parks. We're using sidewalks. Creating this sense of activity. Something's going on here. And that's a good thing. It's amazing how dogs in cities end up humanizing cities. Now, the ultimate... In making for lovable cities, though, are the people in those cities who absolutely passionately love those places. Um, And in my book, I call them co-creators because they're sort of co-creating the city, along with all the official folks that one would expect, mayors, city councils, administrators, those kind of folks. What about those unofficial folks, the ones that we know really make our city and make some really great stuff happen in our community? This is Bob Devin Jones. He's my friend. He's uh, the creative director of a small black box theater in downtown St. Petersburg where we live. And those of us who live in St. Pete know that Bob is one of those people who makes St. Pete a great place to live, work, and play. But he doesn't show up on any sort of traditional city org chart. He's not part of the most you know, influential business people, none of that sort of traditional uh, rankings, none of that. But those of us in the know know that he is an anchor persona in our community. You know, we talk about anchor institutions, anchor businesses, certainly. What about those anchor people? We need to value them as a community resource uh, the way we do anchor institutions and anchor businesses. Um, This is Connie Britton Bauer. She makes ice cream. She makes really wonderful artisanal ice cream, and she's opened up several small shops all around the Columbus, Ohio area, and it's great, great stuff. On a typical Friday or Saturday night uh, in the short north, just uh, north of downtown Columbus, there's a line out the door to her shop for people to go in to get ice cream. They sit inside, or better yet, they take it, they walk around the neighborhood having this wonderful ice cream, high touch. Or how about Phil Cooley here from Detroit, uh, Phil moved back to Detroit, and he and a couple friends bought an old building that at the time didn't even have a roof on it. But because Phil knew how to swing a hammer, he wasn't afraid of that, and they rehabbed the building, and they opened up one of the hottest restaurants to open in, uh, in Detroit in the last several years called Slow's Barbecue right near Cork, in Corktown near the old Tiger Stadium. And if you like barbecue and you want a cool place to go, it is a great, great restaurant. And Phil has become sort of a de facto champion uh, of Detroit by opening a, a restaurant and a place where people go and congregate and things like that high-touch entrepreneurs. They don't get enough credit, but think about those people and those types of businesses that really make a difference in our community. This is Candy Chang. Uh, She's an artist from New Orleans. And after Hurricane Katrina, she did a fairly simple little project. It's this stencil that says, it's good to be here. And she uses spray chalk, not spray paint, so it washes off when it rains. Spray chalk, and she starts uh, putting this message, it's good to be here, all over the city. Think about that message in the context of New Orleans, a city that most people thought they had lost. It's like, wow, it is good to be here. And that is really quite powerful, especially when you start seeing it over and over and over again. Communities pay lots of money to marketing firms for internal branding campaigns and self-confidence campaigns and things like that, and that's great. We should do that. But sometimes it can be as simple as an artist, somebody who loves their community with a stencil and a can of spray chalk making this kind of message and this kind of profound sort of uh, connection with the community. I love this project. This is a fantastic example of what a creative person, a person who is in love with their community, unbidden, unpaid, can potentially do to make their community a better, more interesting, more lovable place. And maybe the best example uh, of this comes from a really interesting set of circumstances. In January of 2011, Newsweek magazine came out with a list that no city in America wanted to be on. It was a list of America's 10 most dying cities. Dying cities. And it's based upon population loss between 2000 and 2010. And sadly for Grand Rapids, Michigan, they were on that list. Now, in typical fashion, what do you, if somebody says something bad about your city, what do you do? It's like, well, uh, we need a new ad campaign. We need a PR blitz. Get the word out. Not a dying city, Right. Well, right now, money's pretty tight for cities, and they probably don't have a whole lot of discretionary income just lying around for a new ad campaign. So Grand Rapids was in that that spot. They said, what the heck are we going to do? In walks this 22-year-old kid. He's 22 years old at the time, and his name is Rob Bliss. He walks in, and he basically says, I have an idea. Let's do a lip dub. A lip what? A lip dub. L-I-P-D-U-B. And for those of you who don't know, a lip dub is essentially lip syncing to a popular song and you do a video of it. And usually the video is like done as oftentimes as one continuous take. So we could do a lip dub here. We start down here, play some music, and you guys start singing. Boom, boom, boom. We go up here, across the back, down the middle, over here. Done. Lip dub. Boring, but a lip dub nonetheless, right? Rob said no. Let's take it. Let's make it big. Let's make it epic. Uh, we'll get everybody involved. We'll shoot it downtown. We'll use uh, Facebook and, and uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter. It'll go out. It'll be. It'll go viral. It'll be big. It'll be fantastic. It'll be great. Now, how do you suppose that conversation went over with the powers that be the first time he was presented that to City Council and things like that? You want to do a lip what using Yoo-hoo, uh, Facebook, Twitter? Uh, that's that 140 characters thing. Viral. That sounds pretty bad. Um, how old are you, son? And by the way, have you ever done this before? Rob does not look like your traditional city solutions provider. He's not wearing a suit and tie, and more importantly, he doesn't have a stack of reports that say if you do this, you get these very predictable outcomes on the other end. No. He's a 22-year-old kid who has an idea, and he thinks he can pull it off. Maybe because they saw something in Rob, or maybe because uh, they had to. Uh, Maybe, I'd like to think it's maybe a combination of both. But Grand Rapids did decide to move forward with this. And they said, we really don't have any money, but we can maybe provide police and fire service. We can help block off downtown. And we can help connect you to some private money and maybe make this happen. And they did. They were able to raise about $40,000. And in May of 2011, they shot the Grand Rapids lip dub. The actual whole video is nine and a half minutes long. And it takes place over a one-mile course throughout downtown Grand Rapids. And over 5,000 people were involved in making it and shooting it that day. That video has been viewed over 5 million times on YouTube. It got picked up by national and international media. Rob was interviewed on Good Morning America. And Grand Rapids got tens of millions of dollars of positive brand exposure because they were willing to listen to a 20 year old kid who had a weird, wacky, untested idea. Yet. You need these people in your community. These folks like Rob Bliss and Bob Devin Jones and Connie Britton Bauer They are like the best spice that goes into a meal. You don't need a lot of them, but certainly you need enough of them to make for a flavorful meal and certainly to make for an interesting community. And what would happen if we actually started to look at at how those people manifest? And I did some research. Folks here know Wikipedia, right? All of us have probably used Wikipedia, yet a very small number of people have ever actually made a contribution back to Wikipedia because all that is user-generated content. So it's called participation inequality. Um, and studies have shown that less than 1% of the total users of Wikipedia ever make a contribution and make an entry back into that. Participation inequality. I believe physical communities follow that same pattern in the sense that a very small number of us actually create all the content that goes into our cities. We all consume our city. you know, And in return, we pay our, uh, we pay our taxes, we obey the law, we spend our money. That's the deal. All of us consume the city. But a few of us, probably most of the folks in here, lots of you folks, are creating things for the city. You're creating that content. You you are that version of Bob Devin Jones or something like that. What would happen if we focused on those people? These are entrepreneurs. These are people who make things happen. They start things, they connect people. Their enthusiasm about their place is absolutely infectious. What if we were even to add a couple dozen more of those people? What would the effect be on your community? Exponential. These people cannot help but what they do. And by having more of them, you're creating more content. You're creating more energy, more activity, more love in your community. Right now, there's a pretty big gap between the city that we desire and the city we know we can afford. The question becomes, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to wait for the city and the county to get rich again? Are we going to wait for government to bail us out on something like that? No, because I think if we do, we're going to be waiting a long time. The solution is for more of us to get in the game. To be the people who fill that gap and step in and do something above and beyond ordinary citizenship. And really put our money where our mouth is. When we say we love a place, well, what are you willing to do for it? Because when you love something, you go above and beyond. You forgive its shortcomings, and you fight for it. Tallahassee needs more people who are willing to fight for it. Needs more people who are willing to show up and say, I give a damn, what can I do? That is the secret to lovable cities. is more people falling in love with their place and seeing themselves as a change agent, seeing themselves as the maker and the shaper and the doer in the community. And that is going to be the salvation, I think, of our cities. It's going to have to be both from the top down, but it absolutely needs this groundswell, this bottom-up activity of people falling in love with their place and going above and beyond and doing something and making a difference in their city. Thank you very much. And... um, Questions, or do we just want to go get a drink? Um, It's up to you guys. Liz, thank you.
0: Peter Kageyama from The Village Squarecast, first published earlier this year, thanks to Liz Joyner and her local organization called The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation. Learn more about the work of The Village Square at our website or theirs, which is villagesquare.us. Like us, Village Squarecast is a member of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts dedicated to engaging in civil discourse, inspiring civic engagement, and exploring the future of our democracy. I'm Richard Davies. Jim and I will be back next time for Episode 391. Miranda Schaefer is our wonderful producer. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today.